0: Good morning. Well, that was hearty. That's the way to start. I wasn't being sarcastic. (laughs) Maybe it's the acoustics, but that seemed pretty lively to me. Uh, We are in Deuteronomy 12 this morning. I would like to welcome you. Uh, If this is uh, your first time here, or whether you were with us last December when we left off, uh, we ended at Deuteronomy 12, verse 1, which is where we will simply pick up this morning, uh, but we will do some uh, review and a little bit of an introduction because we come to a transition in the text. Why don't I pray for us, and then we will begin looking, looking at it. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful that you give us wonderful opportunity to gather with your people to celebrate the lordship and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this word that you have given to us by Moses' pen and his wisdom. We thank you that you have raised up prophets such as him, whom we are able to learn from. And we pray that you would enable us to do that this morning. Open our eyes that we may indeed behold wonderful things out of your law. We ask for it in Christ's name. Amen. So, a very brief review for the first 11 chapters. Moses is Israel's spiritual leader, and he considers himself to be Israel's teacher. If you look at Deuteronomy 1, verse 5, Moses gives the setting for where these great sermons in the text of Deuteronomy come from. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab... Moses undertook to explain this law, this Torah, which is teaching or wisdom. And he said, and then it goes on from there. So Moses' objective in all of the book of Deuteronomy is to explain a teaching to the people of Israel. And again in chapter 4, verse 1, we run into something very similar. As Moses is drawing to a close over this section... He says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. Deuteronomy 1, verse 4. Incidentally, we looked at chapter 1 and chapter 4 just now. That ground covers what the Lord has done for Israel in his gracious saving activity of redeeming them from the land of Egypt, and carrying them through the years of judgment in the wilderness, and having brought them safely through Edom and Moab to the plains of Moab, just on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So he's taken those four chapters to say, look what God has done for you. In chapter 5, he summons Israel. Uh, This is kind of a regathering of the people of Israel, a second sermon, many commentators would say. Where he begins to explain the way Israel ought to respond to that saving activity of the Lord. Chapter five, verse one. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, "Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I am speaking that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them." Israel is to hear, learn, and do what God expects from his redeemed covenant people. That sermon ranges from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 29, verse 1. So we're in the middle of it. But that doesn't mean we aren't at a transition point. From chapters 6 through 11, Moses has been explaining why God has been gracious to Israel and how Israel should respond with unhindered heart-level loyalty to this God. He basically, through chapters 6 through 11, explains the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he explains it by beginning with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if you look at that little outline I gave you, um, there's a a handout at each of the doors. If you were to look at that, um, I gave you, as best I could summarize, what the outline of the book of Deuteronomy is up until where we are. So at Deuteronomy 12, Moses shifts from explaining that we should love the Lord our God to explaining what that love looks like, how it is expressed through Certain forms of worship. And that goes from Deuteronomy 12 to Deuteronomy 18. God willing, that will occupy roughly our summer. So, what does the first expression of unremitting love for the Lord look like? First, it looks like worship. Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to do in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to you to possess all the days that you are upon the ground. Now we have our introduction. Moses begins to explain the details, we might say, of the law, and that's made plain because a key word is missing. If we were to go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Keep a finger in Deuteronomy 12. We're going to compare Deuteronomy 12, 1 with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules, that the Lord God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the rules. Can anyone tell me what word is missing? Commandment, that's right. The commandment, singular, is explained by the statutes and rules, plural, that follow. The commandment is explained by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Moses has switched gears now from explaining that commandment to explaining how does that commandment give expression or how is that commandment expressed through our acts of worship. What are the statutes and rules that go into what that commandment is? Statutes and rules summarize the commandment, or the commandment summarizes the statutes and the rules. And that singular commandment is expressed, of course, we said in uh, chapter 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6.25 is similar. That's Deuteronomy 6.25, which is not what I'm looking for. Well, anyway, uh, that uh, comes up a number of different times. We're not off to a great start here, are we? Well, at any rate, let's try uh, going back here just a little bit. Chapter 6, verse 22. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And this is actually the verse we were looking for, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. So, chapter 6, by beginning uh, by explaining. The great commandment looks like love. Love the Lord your God. Chapter 6 also explains it is fear the Lord your God. Love and fear are not opposites. They are the twin rails that keep our faith on course. They complement one one another. And they are necessary to one another. That fear of seeing God's wrath fall on the Egyptians in verse 22. And recognizing that you have not received that fate, Verse 23 He brought us out from there. That is what fear is, trembling at the thought that the judgment that befell the Egyptians would befall you if you prove to be disloyal, if you don't love the Lord your God. So fear and love go together. Between the two of them, though, love is the more powerful force. And it is the more unexpected force. God's all over the world, in all sorts of religions, likely, in um, all the religions, command some sort of fear. How many of them command love? That is unexpected. And that that love is given as well. So love becomes the distinguishing mark, then, of Israel religion. Chapter 11 Verse 22, near the end of the section, right? The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Summarized one more time in chapter 11, verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment, again singular, that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. So love is the brackets for chapter 6 through chapter 11. Again, the summary of the law. Chapter 12, the commandment is missing. Now we are down to statutes and rules. Because that love takes very particular forms. Moses begins to explain those now. So chapter 12 is a great place for us to pick up for the summer in looking at formalized worship, the first expression of love for the Lord. That was a lot of intro material, but you can see now how it ties in. Any thoughts or questions over chapters 1 through 11? Okay. Okay. We will look at verses 1 through 14 this morning. What we're going to do, a little bit unusual, we're going to read all 14 verses before we begin any explanation of them. So let's read Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 14, so we can take this material a little bit more thematically this morning. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their God and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake." in which the Lord your God has blessed you you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes for if you for you have not as yet come to the rest of the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to inherit and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes there you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I am commanding you So back to verse 1 The statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the Lord in the land that the Lord the God of your fathers has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. God's long-standing intention has been for Israel to live and to prosper, to do well. God is not glorified when his people call on him and there is no response. God wants to bless his people, but a condition to that blessing is that they be careful to do what they have been commanded to. In response to God's gracious saving work, their first act of worship is actually to destroy places of worship. Verse 2 You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. And then he draws out and elaborates where those places are found. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Canaanites worshipped on mountains and hills. The idea is that that is as close as you can get to the realm of the gods. How close can you get to heaven? As far as the mountains and hills will take you. Where is it that the gods leave their abode and come to be among us if they do that? What's the highest point between earth and heaven? It's the mountain. And so, if you've ever wondered why we see great pyramids built, especially the stepped ones, in cultures all over the world, it's because cultures all over the world believed the same thing, and their goal was to create a place where they could not only reach heaven, but where heaven could kind of come down. And so they actually had temples at the bases of those pyramids, not at the top, There's a resting place at the top for the gods, but they actually want them to come to the foot of the mountain. But how do they descend? On a ladder, on a mountain. And so, they go and worship God at the mountains. Elevated places are nearest heaven. Where does the psalmist look? Psalm 121. He lifts his eyes to the hills. Where does this help come from? The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But it is not coincidental that the temple is built on the highest hill near Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't object to that sort of thinking. Jacob has a dream. Angels ascending and descending on a ladder from heaven to earth. Jerusalem's temple built up high on a hill. Green trees. Life depended on fertility, the reproduction of plants and animals and people. Civilizations depend on reproduction of every sort. And in arid places, places that are dry, especially in southern Israel, trees become a symbol of blessing by the gods. They become known as places that are fertile. So let's go back to Genesis. We're going to look at three different texts in Genesis here, so keep a finger in, first, in Deuteronomy 12. Let's go back to Genesis, chapter 18, verse 8. The Lord appears to Abraham, and he promises the birth of Isaac. This is right before we go into the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice where Abraham is. Verse 7, The guests come, Genesis eighteen seven, And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. That's not merely to say that they were being provided rest under the shade of a tree that protects them from the sun's rays. That's true, too. Why was Abraham camped by a tree? Why does the text make specific mention of that? Abraham camped by a tree because it was a sign of fertility. That's where he wants to be. And the Lord blessed him not because he was camped by a tree, But Abraham used the means he thought most acceptable and usable to his cause. Genesis 21. We see something a little bit different, but the same idea yet again. Genesis 21, verse 33. Start in verse 32 again, though. Abraham makes a treaty with Abimelech so that they would not war against each other. So they, Abraham and Abimelech, made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Why plant a tree? There's blessing there. The Lord blessed Abraham at that place and giving him protection from his enemies. So you plant a tree as a sign of blessing. And tamarisks, by the way, are exceptional at absorbing the dew when it falls. So it's also a way to harvest water in a dry place. So mountains, hills, and green trees. Verse 2. Verse 3. Deuteronomy 12, verse 3. A fourfold command here. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods. And we'll pause right there. Those are the four, right? Tear down altars, dash in pieces, pillars, burn ashram, chop down the images of their gods. Altars were used in legitimate worship from the time of Adam until Christ. Stone pillars. Let's go back now to Genesis 28, verse 17 to 22. Genesis 28... Genesis 18, excuse me, Genesis 18. No, I'm sorry. I was looking at the wrong text. We were in Genesis 18. Genesis 28. (laughs) Sorry about that. Genesis 28, verse 17. God appears to Jacob in the dream. Jacob wakes up. Verse 17, And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This pillar is the same sort of pillar that Israel is commanded to destroy in Deuteronomy 12. Again, used in legitimate worship. The last two in the list of Deuteronomy 12, verse 3, we're done with Genesis now. The last two are explicitly banned in Israelite worship. Chop down, uh, burn their ashram with fire, chop down the carved images of their gods. The ashram are wooden pillars or figurines of the goddess. Uh, who was an escort to the main god of the place. So Baal, male god, had a wife. Her name was Asherah. So did a whole bunch of other gods have the same escort goddess, banned in Israel's worship. The images are representations of the foreign gods themselves. The word here, uh, some of you may have hewed down or cut down or chopped down the word just means to lop off and so it could either be a stone metal or most likely a wooden representation but not necessarily wooden however on grounds of grammar the last two are the most significant so when it says you shall chop you shall burn their ashram with fire you shall chop down the carved images of their gods That is what it means to destroy their names out of that place. The end of verse 3. So, really, there should be the, the ESV puts the period in the wrong spot. The period should go before burn their ashram with fire. So, burn their ashram with fire, lop off their carved images, therefore, or so, you shall destroy their name out of that place. That is significant for two reasons. One, there is a grammar issue at play there, and those things are primarily what the Lord has in mind by destroying the names of foreign gods. The second one is this. All of the other things are legitimate forms of worship in Israelite religion. It's only the last two that are actually banned. Now, God abhors man-made physical representations of himself. The last two are idolatrous, but not the others. God even commands stones be set up in his honor. If we were to look at Joshua 4, when Israel is crossing the Jordan, the Lord tells Joshua, take 12 stones from the river, you set them up for a memorial on the other side of the Jordan. That's, a, standing, that's a, a stone pillar. That's the same thing that is going on here in Deuteronomy 12 that they're to destroy. Why then, if all of these things are used in legitimate worship in Israel, are they to be destroyed? It's because the Lord is after driving the name of the foreign gods out of the place. We'll come and spend a good deal more time on that in a little bit later. Uh, Right now, just simply drawing this point. The only things that are explicitly banned in Israelite worship are the things that are directly and most prominently related to the names of foreign gods. All of the other things are incidentally associated with their worship as with Israel's worship. Again, we'll we'll elaborate on that a little bit more. But let's go on to verse 4 for right now. Verse 4 says, You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. That is the NASB. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. The ESV and the NIV have different translations. They say you should not worship the Lord your God that way. But that could mean two different things. the, The Hebrew, reflected well by the NASB, could really mean two things. On the one hand... It could mean, do not destroy Yahweh's things the way you are destroying Canaanite things. It could also mean, do not worship the Lord the same way that the Canaanites worship their gods. So there's two things that it could mean, and two things that it probably does mean. Don't destroy the Lord's things, don't worship the Lord the way the Canaanites do. How Israel should worship is explained in verses 5 and following, especially 5 and 6. And we'll see three contrasts appear. First is the contrast of location. Verse 5, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall Bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd and flock. There is also the contrast of the name. Back up in verse 5 again. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So there is place and there is name. That makes the place unique. But then, at the last uh, verse seven, there is also at least an implied contrast of emotion or tenor of worship. Verse seven, "There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you." So we are going to look at those three contrasts here thematically. Contrast of place, contrast of name, and contrast of spirit of worship. Thoughts or questions uh, up through verse 6. Absolutely. So if you didn't get to hear uh, Shirley, she said that there seems to be such a fine line between true and false worship, uh, that we need to be very diligent uh, in making sure that we are, are focused on worshiping the way scripture directs us to. It's a great, great point. Yeah, there should definitely be a spiritual work happening. Good. Anything else? Okay. Let's start with place. One thing is clear. Israel doesn't worship where they choose to worship. Canaanites picked the spots that seemed the most logical to them. Canaanites used Canaanite wisdom for worship. Hence, high places, mountains, hills, and green trees. Israel's worship is not left to her wisdom, but is entirely directed by God. Now, the significance of place, let's not get sidetracked, the significance of the place is not in the location itself. The significance of place is that the Lord himself chooses where it is going to be. So verse 5, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name there. There you shall go. So God chooses, Israel pursues that place, goes after it, and actually finds herself worshiping there. This partly explains why the tabernacle relocates the way it does. Once Israel enters the land of Canaan, the tabernacle apparently has a short stint at Shechem, perhaps a short stint at Bethel, and a longer stint at Shiloh. Then the tabernacle falls off the map, the ark is in storage, and ends up at Jerusalem later on. This also helps explain why Israel could worship in places other than where the tabernacle was. Partly because the tabernacle was indeed in storage, but more than that, when Samuel goes on his circuit judging Israel, he makes sacrifices at makeshift altars all over the place in Benjamin and in Judah, and even further north than that. So, Samuel doesn't break the law by not worshiping where the Lord hadn't put his name. The question is, where is the name of the Lord when the tabernacle isn't there? Now, the focus then isn't on the singularity of the place. The focus is on the singularity of who chooses the place. There's one who chooses where Israel is going to worship. That is the Lord. Now, singularity of place is important. Twice the text says he will choose that place out of all your tribes, verse 5. And then again, down in verse 14, uh, don't go to any place out of all your tribes. The Lord will choose a place from all your tribes, to put his name. So singularity of place is important, but that isn't the main thrust of the text. This is an indication that there are going to be increasing boundaries on acceptable worship. Right now, those boundaries are fairly loose. The Lord is going to constrict the boundaries of proper worship as time goes on. That, I think, also goes a little ways in explaining verse 8. So in Deuteronomy 12, verse 8, we're jumping down now a little bit says you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes for you have not as yet come to the rest that the inheritance to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you so Moses is saying we are not worshiping the way we ought to worship when we are in the land he also makes a little derogatory comment about we're not even doing it now um, but there is something about the Lord's work that constricts our worship. Moses gives no explanation as to what he means when he says, don't do like what we're doing here today. We don't know exactly. We can speculate, but we don't know exactly what he means by that. All we know is that there is a reason for worshiping the way they are worshiping now. That again is verse 9. Because you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Why are you worshiping this way? The Lord hasn't completed the project yet. We are in process. And so the way they worship is a little bit looser than what it will be in the future. Remember that Israel is currently on the plains of Moab. Israel is not even in the land of promise, she's waiting to get there. After Israel is in the land of promise, something changes. Before we get there, though, let's ask this question. Israel already has the tabernacle. Israel is never again going to live so densely around God's sanctuary, as they do when they're on the plains of Moab. All 12 tribes surrounded the tent. They'll never be that close to it again. And second, they will never have as easy of access to God's sanctuary as they have now. So what is going to change in the future that worship is constricted in spite of those increasing hardships? The Lord is going to do more. That is what is different. Verse 10. But when you go over the Jordan... And live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. So in one sense, little changes. Moses says, don't do like we're doing here today. On the other hand, something very significant changes. Before God completes his work, he is comparatively lenient. We've seen this in a place like Matthew 19, verse 8, when Jesus is fielding questions about divorce. And the Pharisees come up to him and they say, Moses wrote that we are to write our wives a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, yes, because of your hardness of heart, he did say that. But that wasn't the intention. So what Jews or Israelites are able to do before the new covenant comes and the Spirit is poured out on God's people, the parameters are a little bit wider than they are once Christ has come and the Spirit is poured out. This is not to be for our encouragement, but for an exhortation of sorts. Whenever we come across the failures of saints in the old covenant, we should never say, well, at least it happened to them we have something they don't because God has done more for us than he did for them. We have the Spirit in a new way. We have the Spirit with a new intensity. Our lives should be holier than they were even in the Old Covenant because God has done something more, so he expects more, which is why in Hebrews 2, chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1-3, to 3, we are given an exhortation right along those lines. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And now he contrasts it with the Old Covenant. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the warning there is pay attention to what the Lord has said, because he has done more for you than he has for them. He is saying to Israel, who is standing on the brink of entering the promised land, Things are going to get tighter in what is permissible. The boundaries are going to be brought in in how you can worship. Don't do like we're doing here today. Do as he is commanding you to do when you are in that land. And that is go to the place where he will put his name. Related then down in verse 10. So back to Deuteronomy 12 verse 10. There is not only the issue of place, there is the issue of circumstance. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, right now they are in a foreign land and they are surrounded by hostiles, they're on the plains of Moab, which Moab wanted. They, I mean, it's called the plains of Moab, even though the Amorites had taken it from Moab. However, it was the Moabites who hired Balaam before this to try and defeat Israel. They are living in enemy territory, even if they technically occupy that land. The Lord says, when you cross the Jordan, I will give you rest from your enemies and you will dwell in safety. So not only are they going to have the land, they are going to have safety and security. And when they are, the Lord himself will make his own home there. Verse 11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. The Israelites lived in tents and so did the Lord. Once Israel was established... And after God had given David rest from all his enemies around, then he had his house built. And once the Lord's house is built, Israel goes to the Lord's house to worship before him. That's proper, and that's fitting. Right now, everyone is in a tent. So, looking back on God's work increases our accountability to living according to the grace that we have received. And Israel is to go worship where the Lord makes his name dwell so that they can actually be in the Lord's presence. It is an act of obedience. It should also be an act of desire. Who wouldn't want to be where the Lord is? And so it is also an invitation Come, celebrate before me. That is remarkable. Other gods demanded worship. They didn't invite their worshipers. Now, the Lord demands worship too. It is a fitting response. But he invites people. And there's a big difference there. We'll come to that in in just a little bit. Um, If we were to go into the New Testament, which we are are hard-pressed for time, so we're not going to, we could look at John 2. And John 4, both of those, God chooses where we worship through Jesus and we could say in Jesus. Jesus is the place we worship and Jesus commands where we worship and that is him. But it only makes sense that the Lord would choose how we worship because he chooses who we worship. And that leads us to the second issue The contrast of name. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 3. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods. And here is the fifth commandment out of the four. And destroy their name out of that place. By destroying... The places and the instruments of worship and those who use them, the Canaanites, Israel is removing the names of the gods who are there. But all of it has to go. I'm going to leave that set. There's a lot more that we could explain there, but I'm going to stop uh, just for time. Thoughts or questions over removing their names and how that works, why it's necessary to destroy the instruments, the places, and the people. We are reverting back pretty quickly. Okay. Contrast to destroying the names, Israel is to establish the Lord's places. So here's where we go back to verse 4. What does it mean? Does it mean do not worship the Lord in the way they worship the Canaanites? We've seen clearly so. But it also means do not destroy the Lord's things the way you destroy the Canaanite things destroy their name, establish the Lord's place. The way they establish the Lord's place is by actually seeking that place, going there and worshiping there. Israel gathering in a centralized location for worship. I wouldn't say makes the place holy, but it indicates the holiness of the place. So by eradicating the names of Canaanite gods and establishing the Lord's name, The Lord is claiming exclusive ownership over the territory in which he is worshipped. In the New Testament, God's presence is in and among his people. The gathering is what makes the place holy, not vice versa. In the old covenant, the Lord's name was placed there, and then He calls His people to come. In the New Testament, works the opposite way. God's name is where His people are, because He indwells them rather than the place. But similar to Canaanite, or similar to Israelite worship, we are protected from absorbing Canaanite practices by our gathering. Now, part of the Focus of centralizing worship is so that the people who gather there would be formed by the place where they are. Um, they, They don't get to do what's right in their own eyes. They don't get to dictate their own practices because inevitably they are going to lapse back into evil practices. Centralizing worship allows them to combat Canaanite worship in a very obvious way. Is this where the Lord is chosen? No, then it's bad. That's pretty cut and dry. We say, is it Jesus? No, then it's bad. We are terribly exclusive people. And of course, the world doesn't like that. But we are exclusive by demand. Third contrast. Emotions, verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Canaanites were anxious in worship. They worshiped out of practical necessity, you might say. We worship because if we don't, the gods might get angry and bad things will happen. Israel certainly has uh, things similar to that. However, the tone of Israel's worship was to be joyful. The Lord doesn't call them to come and grovel. He calls them to come and celebrate. Rejoice. Have a feast. When you are bringing all that you have, don't come stingy. You're only cheating yourselves. Come filled and ready to party. And so he calls Israel there. So in verse 7, the focus, or we might even say the underlying reason for their celebration is You shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, or because of all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So Israel comes with all of these tithes and contributions and the whole litany of uh, things used in worship because the Lord has already blessed them. So they're simply bringing what the Lord has given them in the first place, but they're bringing them with the purpose of rejoicing. So God supplies... And we celebrate the Lord's provision when we gather. That's part of what is happening. We are celebrating because of how good the Lord has been to us. Now, if we jump down to verse 12, Moses doesn't say you and your households anymore. Now he explains the household. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns since he has no portion or inheritance among you. God wants all to join in the festal celebration. So now the focus isn't why they're celebrating. Now it's who are those that are celebrating? Everyone. Everyone is invited to the Lord's feast. Now the link to communion is obvious, and I wouldn't have done this except we had communion this morning. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Pastor Andy always gives us our text. And while you're flipping there, I will say this. Communion at times should be a solemn event. Christ did have to shed his blood for our sins. And we continue to sin. That is a grievous thing. And so when we come to the Lord's table, there is often appropriately an aspect of Solemnity about it. However, communion should also be the most celebrative time in Christian worship because Christ has shed his blood for us. It goes both ways. So in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, What does Deuteronomy 12 12 command? You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is in your town. The man who has no opportunity to provide his own income, whereby he might bring something of his own. He comes as someone who is needy, not as someone who can bring anything to contribute. He is not a contributor. He is one who is needy. Needy because he's in the Lord's service, but needy nonetheless. Verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, I want to point out, it is in that context that Paul says, let a person examine himself. The context of the passage is what leads Paul to say, examine yourself. And as we all have ongoing sin, we ought to do the same. But notice in verse 33, the way Paul ends it. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. Well, what's the alternative? Celebration. Deuteronomy 12 is when Israel comes to feast before the Lord at the Lord's expense. The Lord blessed them. The Lord provided for them. The Lord called them. The Lord invited them. The Lord is the host. Israel's the guest. Communion. The Lord is the host. The Lord is invited, the Lord is provided. We come as guests to celebrate before him. So in communion, let us not only have a tone of sobriety at times, let us have a tone of celebration. Equally pleasing in the Lord's eyes. We're at time, thoughts or questions over what we've covered this morning. Very good. God willing, I'll see you next week.